Welcome to The Black Athlete, a podcast where we put the past into the present of black sports. I'm Lewis Moore. I'm Derek White. We're sports historians here to give you the historical context for contemporary black athletes. And welcome back to The Black Athlete. I'm Lewis Moore, author of I Fight for a Living and We Will Win the Day. I'm Derek White, and I am the author of Challenge of Blackness and Blood, Sweat, and Tears. Derek, and, and and welcome back, by the way. Just just let you guys know, we've been on spring break, so so a bit of a hiatus. Um, and we've been wanting to talk to you about a number of things, but because we were in different spots, we could not come together. But today, we will be talking to you about March Madness. Yes, it's that time of the year for everyone to fill out their brackets, root for their favorite teams, uh, root for upsets. The opening weekend is the best weekend of the year, man. That's what is going on. But apparently we missed a lot of stuff while we were on a uh, break. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and since we're both college educators, the one that, that caught me the most was, was the admission scandal. Um, it's both hilarious and sad at the same time. So, Derek, what are your thoughts about that? Oh man, the scandal. It's uh it's been pretty hilarious uh for me. I laugh for about 2 days straight as, you know, I'm I'm probably a little too close to home uh working up at one of these elite institutions. Um but I will say this, right? What it really reveals is a couple of things. One, the kinds of uh money that people are willing to spend to get into elite institutions, that's clear. But the other part and the part that I think is most relevant to us is the fact that they were using what uh, the guy, Rick Singer, I think his name is, um, the side door. And the side door meant that these uh, non-athletes were being categorized as athletes with bad Photoshop, um, <laughs> saying, yeah. that they, <laughs> saying that they were track and field stars in, in, in events such as pole vault uh, when they were not even on the track team. And so this is the kinds of things that I think are important, but I think there's some real historical and I, I think racial dynamics as well, as well uh, to uh, this scandal. Yeah. And there's a couple things for me on that, that idea of um, the racial aspect and sports on this scandal. One, as we, we were talking to earlier um, before we hopped on, is this idea of the power of sports, like the big time sports, the revenue generated sports, the football and the basketball that's prim- primarily, you know, produced by black athletes are funding these other sports like water polo, right? Which then allows, right? This is part of that kind of middle door that they're they're coming through, right? Which allows these affluent white kids to come in on these scholarships are fake athletic scholarships, right? Because these black players have essentially created a model where that money trickles down to these other programs to benefit white athletes, but not necessarily these black athletes. Oh, for sure. And, and, and let's be clear, like these folks are not getting scholarships, right? They're just getting a roster spot, right? But what we see between both uh, revenue generating sports, basketball and football primarily, which are predominantly black and water polo, track and field, um, uh, crew, sailing, uh, these sports that ha- were, were ensnared in this scandal is really a situation in which those sports exist because of Title IX, right? That the, the requirement that uh, women's sports have a number of options, right? Uh, to meet their kind of um, 
to meet uh, the demand for sports. And so what you see is that these roster spots are not only taking away uh, spots that uh, would never probably include many African-Americans in across the country, but they're also taking away spots from deserving athletes who could take full advantage of title nine. Right. And so there's so many losses in this. Um, in addition to the coaches, you know, asking for $400,000, uh, making $2 million in bribes uh, for these roster spots. Yeah, hey, you got to get that bag though. So, so I'm not mad at that. But, but the other thing to me, and I don't think anybody's really talking about this either as much, is the idea that you have low standards for these athletes, right? And and I think part of this has to do with race, and a lot of this discussion comes up in the '80s when you're talking about uh, Prop 48, right? And that that idea that you have to get a certain amount. Um, a, a certain score on your SAT, right, to be eligible to play because what had been happening before the mid-80s is all these schools are using and abusing these black athletes and, and bringing them in and not graduating them or graduating these ones who could read or write, right? So you, because you have these, the, or couldn't read or write because you have these lower standards and all of a sudden Prop 48 comes out. Right. And it's clearly, as Shaq says in, in, in the hit movie, uh, Blue Chips, right? It's culturally biased against, against black folks. And he's actually right about that. Um, but this is what creates that, that middle door that, that they're, that they're essentially sliding through, right? This idea that because you want these black athletes in your institution to make money, you lower these standards. Now, it's not to say that. Black athletes can't make the grades, but it is to say that a lot of times these schools that they're coming from are chronically underfunded. Well, I think what is also, yeah, I think they're coming from schools that are underfunded, but what you're what, really what, 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 uh, these individuals, the key foundation, I believe it was called, uh, were involved in is that they're really just taking advantage of this, what we think of as a two tiered kind of admission standard, right? And the admission standard is that all athletes, not just black ones, not just revenue generated sports, um, but all athletes come under a slightly different standard than our general admits, right? And I think that that's one of the things that, it's kind of a soft spot that was open for corruption uh, that um, this foundation, this this company uh, figured out. Uh, and you're right that the origins of that soft spot in many ways go back to not just Prop 48, but also back to, um, you know, the very early integration of, of colleges, especially in the Deep South. One of the things I talk about in my book is the ways in which like the state of Florida, for instance, uh, introduced all these new testing requirements to get into the University of Florida that did not exist um, before uh, the threat of integration. So since after, that did not exist before World War II. And these new uh, testing options for incoming freshmen were used as a kind of bar to say, hey, we can't find it. We can't desegregate because we can't find black athletes who meet the test. Right. And so what you see is this kind of minimal level. And so as the rest of the college becomes more competitive, you see a different tier for all athletes, not just revenue generating sports. So there's a lot of racial dynamics at play um, that are kind of underlining and kind of entwined in this scandal that haven't been fully unpacked yet. Yeah. And real quick, since you just flexed on me and, and mentioned your, your new book, do you want to give us the name of this new book? Ah, uh, yes. New book, blood, sweat and tears, Jake Gaither, Florida A&M and the history of black college football. Yeah. And it's a dope cover. I saw you uh, tweeted it out today. 
Um, I think it's really they did a really good job at, at UNC. So shout out to them um, for their production team. Oh yeah, definitely they're doing a great job. Uh, we look forward in the summer. Uh, it's gonna hit your, hit your shelves hopefully, or it'll definitely hit it'll definitely hit the Amazon shelves. Let's put it that way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and and look, listeners, I, I've had a chance to go over it to look at it. It's 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 a game changer, right? It's one of the one of those first books uh, from an academic that really centers the black community and black sports at the same time. So it's gonna be a must have. Um, and if you're a listener that that assigns books to your classrooms, definitely put it in your class, and then contact Derek to Skype in. Yes, I will do all those Skypes, uh, especially if your class uses the book. Uh, more than happy to do that. <laughs> and then if you're looking for further information on the black athletes and and academics um, and the history of that, one place to go check it, check out is that uh, 1968 series that um, Sports Illustrated did, right? The shameful story of the black athlete. There's a five-part story, and one of them is just specifically focused on athletes and academics and it's 50 what, 51 years ago where really everybody's just kind of enlightened about what's happening to these um athletes right yeah right. no yeah no no that's it i mean that's that's what you that's what it is right like you know when you know the shameful story is that these these black athletes are getting into these predominantly white institutions and they're being fully exploited where they're not even graduating and one of the things that that's clear in my book is that um, a vast majority of the black student athletes at black colleges graduated uh, and they graduated with, uh, and most of them graduated, many of them graduated with a physical education degree, which put them back into what I call this kind of sporting congregation. They were teachers, they were coaches in black high schools and whatnot uh, across their home states. And so there's this kind of interesting network that's happening that gets disrupted by desegregation. And as black athletes move to uh, far flung places uh, to, to, pursue sporting opportunities uh, where black folks didn't go before. Most notably, like we talk about the Wyoming 14, for instance. Yeah. And since it sounds like we're getting there and, and uh, to what we want to talk about mainly, and that is uh, March Madness is upon us. The tournament is out. I, I like to be honest. Um, I have not watched what more than one game yesterday uh, I watched the Michigan state Michigan game. I've caught a bit of the most exploited athlete of all time, Zion Williamson play for Duke. But other than that, I, I could tell you who's good or not, but I'll probably watch anyway, even during class. Don't tell anybody. Um, but what I did notice yesterday during selection Sunday, is something that's continuing to happen a lot to these HBCUs that, that you studied and that is they're they're getting in with you know winning their tournament championship, and that seems to be the only way these teams to get in. But then instead of being put in this regular field of sixty four, and that and to me that's important because we still value that sixty four. They're getting put into the playing game, and the reason why we're doing this show is because uh, yesterday I I had tweeted out at, at Lou More Twelve that you know this is a shame, right, and it's a sham that that you have these HBCUs who have a tradition of rich basketball. And instead of being invited into the tournament where they can get that exposure, like that field of 64 exposure, um, they're pu being pushed to the outside. And we want to talk about that because I think part of this is having to do with the history of racism, not only amongst the NCAA, but also amongst states. 
Yeah. I mean, I think what you're seeing is this, right? Like there's this long history that why is it that black colleges in 2019, um, who play a competitive brand of basketball, but not able to compete against the elite Dukes, but also not able to, you know, rarely can compete consistently, at least against the mid or lower, what we think of as the power six conferences, the major conferences in basketball. And there's a lot of legacy here, right? One of the most obvious is that, that it, you know, that the NCAA doesn't take history into account when they're making these decisions, but in many, in many ways they should, right? Because, at HBCUs, at one point in the 40s and 50s uh, and 60s, that black college basketball was as competitive as any across the country, right? And, you know, we see North Carolina Central, uh, led by John McClendon and Tennessee State. They're winning NAIA titles in the 1950s. They're winning NIT preseason tournaments. Um, you see... Um, Earl the Pearl, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, at Winston-Salem State winning Division II championship in 67. Uh, we see Alcorn State uh, competing uh, and winning games in the NCAA tournament in the early 1980s. And so there's this opportunity there that is able, not able to be fully capitalized because, as you noted, right, there's this history of segregation, the impact of desegregation on black colleges, and that they just do not have – the consistent kind of resources that will allow them to compete. And so the irony is that you could look at a place like Central Florida, for instance, who's in the tournament this year, having all this new success in football and basketball, and they are able to generate the success with kinds of resources and state support that Florida A&M never got, right? Uh, and so there's this all this kind of tension at play, and I think it's encapsulated in this play-in game where every year we're watching black college teams having to earn their way into the main part of the dance. Right, and and that's what struck me um, going through your book is you know you 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 deal with that right the idea that say fam you got less than Florida. And, and and Florida State and this happens throughout the South right so part of segregation and we're and, you know we're talking about teams having these resources is stripping the resources away from these black schools which later on won't allow them to compete or allow them to attract that talent right and I think Roden does a good job of bringing this up in 40 million dollar slaves right with you know why couldn't let's say the Fab Five go to Grambling or Southern. And I think we brought it up a couple of years ago with Ben Simmons. Like, oh, wouldn't it be cool if he went to Southern? But the reality is that those schools would never, ever be able to compete for those players because the history of segregation and the history that didn't allow them to get equal funding. And, and for example, in your book, like what are some of the numbers that you talk about in your book with FAMU in Florida? So Florida was this year, a really kind of interesting state. Like, and uh, they had this because football was always key in Florida for many, many years, uh, especially after World War II. And so there's this fund that's created um, initially in the during the Depression that carries all the way through to the other side of World War II that was known as a football fund. So they had a, one day of gambling where all the gambling revenues would be would be distributed to the three major universities, Florida, Florida State, and Florida A&M. Uh, and instead of it being divided equally into thirds, no, f- it was divided unequally, right? So um, uh, University of Florida got about 56%, I think, and then um, Florida State got 38%, and then 
Uh, fam, you got 12%. That probably doesn't equal up to 100. Um, but <laughs> I'm not going to do the math. Don't do the math, right? But no, you, what you see is that like, there's a sense that um, – so fam, you gets just a, a, a fraction of the money. And so even though they had the best program in the state, uh, the foot, best football program in the state in the 40s and the 50s, and definitely by 1960, they are getting a fraction of the dollars that the University of Florida is getting and Florida State. And Florida State's a unique case, right? Because Florida State was a women's college before World War II and becomes a co-ed college after the GI Bill at the, after World War II. And so it does not have any kind of football athletic history um, that it can be compared to Florida A&M, but because what it did have was whiteness. And so that was enough to warn weren't 38% or so of uh, of this particular money that was dubbed the football fund. Right. And and look, and, and what we're we're saying here and what I was trying to explain through that tweet is is the history of this means without those resources, you're not getting those players. And today you've seen a huge impact on it, right? So a school like South Carolina can have a barbershop in it and attract black players or or have a uh a studio, right? A recording mm-hmm. studio or Clemson can build a lazy river, right? <laughs> and, and, right? So, so they have all these, these revenues that they're generating off these black players. And the reason why they're doing it is because these schools look attractive because these schools had, had the money. Um, what's also interesting about that time, just kind of researching and we've talked about it before is that post Brown moment, right? Where, where mm-hmm. throughout the, the K 12 system and even the college system is look, the South, you know, white folks in the South did not want to integrate. And one of their solutions was to throw money finally at these black schools, right? So that means build them a brand new, you know, high school or build them a brand new middle school. And for these black colleges, it also, what you start to see is the building of facilities, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I actually sent you a DM when I was trying to figure this out, going through through research and going through black newspapers is what I was seeing is like, oh my gosh, you know, uh, you know, Alabama State's getting a new gym at this time. You know, this is a coincidence. Like, because if I look at FAMU, FAMU is getting a new gym or a new football field or, you know, another school in Louisiana is getting the same thing. And, and that to me, like, look, if you're a student, that's and you're looking for a research project or you're looking for something like a chapter to write about um to me that's such a a a healthy topic right to look at sports at these hbcus in a post brown moment when they're starting to get funding just because um the state wants to keep them segregated yeah like it's just this weird moment right there's this quote that i have in the book and so it's roughly like walter white says every time we win a lawsuit Walter White was the head of the NAACP in, in, after World War II. And he said, every time we win a lawsuit, uh, these states throw more money at the black colleges, right? And and I think what you see is you're right. Like there's all this kind of new money. Um, coaches get ma- get paid. Uh, they get raises. New stadiums get built. Um, the biggest way you can see it, for example, is the ch- name, the, the change in the name. So Florida A&M College becomes Florida A&M University, which is something that the school administrators and alumni have wanted. But it's also able to be accomplished in part because it's a way of kind of slowing desegregation. So if Florida a and is a university, then uh, students have no reason to go to the University of Florida, right? For, for law school or medical school or for pharmacy school. And so you see all this development happening. And so one of the things that scholars have done is they've looked at this in other ways, but they have not looked at it in terms of sports. And you're right, it'd be a really kind of robust 
uh, project. So if we got any new PhD students listening, that's a, it's a way of uh, something for them to tackle. Yes, yes. And then the other thing, look, if you're just wanting ideas, stuff I'm not going to get to, uh, I believe, is it Rufus Lewis? Um, his papers, right? The former football coach was was part of the Montgomery oh, yeah. Bus Boycott. Yeah, yeah. Right, right. So if another thing you're looking to to do, like, look, football coach at, at HBCU was was part of that Montgomery Bus Boycott. And and I believe his paper, where are his papers? Ooh, they are at Alabama State. Yeah. So look, there I just we just gave you a research project um and i hope i didn't steal one for you Derek, because I, no, I, no. I i don't have time to do that i don't i don't have enough time to do all these projects um, right right no, i have a fast. lot of i have a lot of ideas but but no time so look we you know listen to the podcast you get a free idea um so, so <laughs> yeah so run with it um the other thing that comes up so that's part one right that when we're saying that look these hbcu should be part of this kind of playing game um, and I'm look, I'm even radical enough to say, look, don't even put them at that 16, like give them that opportunity just on general principle, right? On GP, give them that opportunity to be a, a, a 14, a 13, you know, a 12, right. give them a chance to win and, and, and make up money for past discrimination. And what I mean, past discrimination is literally the NCAA would not let these schools into their tournament. Now they did it in a, in a sly way where they're not saying, Hey, black schools can't get in. But they're not letting them in. And partly the reason why they're not letting them in is because they're saying they're not qualified. You know, this is the 50s, 60s, 70s. They're not qualified to get into our tournament. Right. And part mm -hmm. of the reason why they're saying they're not qualified to get in the tournament is they're saying they don't play enough, you know, big major schools. Right. But they can't play big major schools because big major schools would not play, you know. The, the Maryland states, which become Maryland Eastern Shore, that that only loses one game, or you know, Alcorn State has to wait a while before it gets to take on Mississippi State. So, because these other schools discriminate against them, and because the NCAA has this policy where they're trying to make it seem like it's not about race, but it clearly impacts them, these black teams can't get into this tournament. And when you can't get into that tournament, you can't get that exposure. When you can't get that exposure, you don't get the athletes, you don't get the revenue. So. You'll see if you look through these black newspapers where coaches of these black schools are straight up calling the NCAA racist for their policies. <laughs> exactly. All the time. I mean, it's funny, you know, one of the things that the NCAA does uh, in uh, the mid to late 60s is they create Division Two, right? So there's all this tension and black colleges are in this odd spot, right? Um, on the football side, they're probably too big for Division Two. Um, but too small to be full-fledged Division One. but Grambling and Florida A&M and Tennessee State and a handful of other programs can compete. On the basketball side, you see the same kind of issues where Winston-Salem State uh, is, is probably too small to regularly compete against some of the major institutions, Kentucky, whatnot. Um, but at the same time, we're talking about a game that's five-on-five five and Winston-Salem State would have a chance and be extremely competitive. But what they do is they get shuttled into the Division Two level so we don't have to ask the question Question, could Winston-Salem State in 67 um, beat uh, Kentucky or could they be competitive in an in NCAA tournament? And those are those things are, are, are basically taken off the table in part um, because of the way they treat and categorize black colleges. So it's not just revenue, but even when the NCAA does so, they create this other level saying, hey, this is a small school, even though they have big school talent and big school ambitions uh, in their athletic world. 
Right, right, right. And just look, look, I threw out this idea that um, these black coaches and, and, and ADs are calling the NCAA uh, racist here. Look, 1974, there's an article titled Racism Hurts Black Schools. Uh, quote, sophisticated racism is what one of these ADs called the NCAA. And another person said, quote, we would like the national television exposure and publicity so that we can achieve excellence in athletics like we are trying to achieve in our academic programs. And what he's doing is making this point that because they're being excluded from these tournaments, they're not getting uh, to be on TV and they're not getting the revenue. And the same thing happens in football, on, in, in football too. Um, and here in 1980, um, there's an article about Alcorn State. Um, and it's entitled, Is It Because We Are Black? Alcorn State, Alcorn State Not Rated. And this one is going off on people who rate these institutions, essentially saying, look, you don't even rate us in the top 25, which won't allow us to get in these tournaments because we're a black school. And at this time, Al- Alcorn State is 28 and 1, having the only loss they have that year at that time was to Indiana. They beat Mississippi State, they beat Arizona State. And they're not even, you know, or, well, they beat Mississippi State. Let me back up. They didn't beat Arizona State. But they're not even, you know, they're not even rated. And someone in this article goes on to say, like, some of the raiders just won't vote for a black institution. These sports writers' voting results reflect the overall attitude of white America when it comes to blacks. We have to be a little bit better in many other aspects, and we still are left out. It's the same in the Braves case, so Auckland State. We are a lot better, but they just come up with more excuses not to vote for us, right? So, I mean, what what I'm trying to say is like race and racism is at the heart of not having these schools in. And then years down the road, you can see how it operates, right? So, boom, they don't get the revenues. They can't attract these players. Um, they're not on TV, these this kinds of things. And part of that's the NCAA. Part of that's the state. And I don't know. We weren't prepared to talk about this, but part of that is like, look, there is like outside of what uh, early nineties when everybody was wearing HBCU stuff, a lot of times HBCUs, HBCUs get a, a right. Get that a negative, right? Uh, like mm-hmm. you won't, you don't want to go there, right? Let me go to the uh, PWI. And I think that hurts them too. Right. I, you know, I talk about this as well. I mean, I think there's a couple of things that you just that 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 are so important here. Right. It's not just the states, but television becomes so important to the financial budgets of both football and basketball. And so when black colleges are not being rated, when they have excellent teams uh, and thus they're not going to be on television, they do not be able to generate this kind of residual income from being kind of successful uh, in their own right. Uh, part of this is like you said, like that article you mentioned, um, that the people, the pollsters refuse to rank, uh, black colleges. We see this in football. We see this kind of regularly in basketball. Um, and so this is always kind of a double-edged sword that they can't really win for losing. And then I think the other part of this is the logic of, uh, of Brown, right? I talk a little bit about this in the, in my, in this book is that the logic of Brown suggests that black, you know, segregation is um, always unequal and also inferior, implicitly inferior. And that logic means that white schools are somehow better than um, black schools. And one of the things I try to tease out is that what that does is it conflates the kind of the material resources of, of white schools, the better, you know, new books, 
new gyms, new lockers, et cetera, et cetera, with the material resources of black teachers versus white teachers. And so what you get is a situation that black colleges and black high schools had this huge network of teachers who who use all their capabilities to raise and encourage um, black students to be the best that they could be. Um, that they were not getting that kind of reinforcement. And I think this is reflected even in the current data. Like we didn't talk, you know, like we didn't talk about this in our, in our prep, but there's tons of scholarship that's come out recently talking about that. If, if you have, if black students have one black teacher, it completely transforms their possibilities uh, for higher education, like just one black teacher. So you can imagine what that is. And so we're starting just now in 2019 to unpack that. And like you said, the nineties are kind of a Renaissance. It was a different world. It was a kind of popular culture at the moment. Uh, and I actually think that we're in this moment again. I think black colleges are poised. Their numbers, I just saw an article this morning, numbers are way up across the board. Every college is ex- almost experiencing increased uh, enrollment, uh, increased applications. Um, and so some of the drama that's happening at PWIs, whether it's Confederate statues, where it's racist teachers, whether it's blackface, all that stuff is really making students really reevaluate what they want out of their college experience. And black colleges, uh, HBCUs are looking really good to a lot of students right at this time. Uh, yes, that's that's man, that's that's beautiful. And look, 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 let let me just admit here while while we have a, a few minutes, and that is and I think I think I can call you out on this too. Didn't you not think that Georgetown was an HBCU in the nineteen eighties? Man, I tell students that story all the time, right? Like, like George. So this is a super personal story. So Georgetown in eighty five is in the final four. They're playing in Lexington, Kentucky, my hometown, and so uh, you know the big thing is like, can we get out of school and go down to Rupp Arena and see this? And so I remember watching the practices on TV during the, you know, like at during the day or they were replaying them at night. And I'm like, Georgetown has like 13 black guys. John Thompson's the head coach. They got four black assistant coaches and they got one white assistant. Like that's their team. And I was like, oh, I just assumed they was a historically black college, right? Like I didn't know anything about it being a Jesuit institution. I didn't know anything about it. And so John Thompson in some ways and Georgetown, like, presented itself to the world in this particular kind of way, right? Um, it was in D.C. I was like, why wouldn't it be black, right? Howard, Howard's in D.C., right? Like, um, and so it was, it was, you know, we come as a surprise when it came time to apply to colleges uh, that Georgetown was not <laughs> a historically black college. <laughs> right, right, right. But but they did have those fresh starter jackets, right? Um, and oh, and yeah. Michael Graham was the baddest man on planet on the planet. Like there was no way you couldn't tell me otherwise. Uh, when I was a young kid trying to watch those teams, like him and, and Pat Ewan, but it's really Michael Graham, right? Um, but on that note, man, I think I think time's up. Yeah. All right. Before we go, let's uh, who you got in the tournament? Uh, is Sac State in there? That's where I went. Uh, <laughs> look, look, look. I'll say this. I'll say this. There's, there's a couple. Look, I'm an NBA guy just because the ball's better. But so I want to see Zion, uh, compete again, right? Um, and I and I love the way he plays because he loves the game. I just wish he wouldn't be so exploited. And it seems like he's a little bit too happy about the exploitation uh, exploitation that's going on. Like my my ultimate dream was that like they get to the finals and he just walks out. Um, I want to see that kid from Murray State play. Other than that, like I, I got nothing. So I'm gonna go. So I'm gonna go ahead and say it's either Duke or uh, Tennessee, which I caught about ten minutes of their game. What about you? 
Oh, you know, I'm a Maryland alum, right? So I, you know, I are they in? Are. Yeah, we're in, but it, you know, it's a tough one. We got a tough road to hold, but I'm Walt rooting Williams for him. is not work, walking through those doors. Juan Dixon is not coming through those doors. Um, so, but I'm rooting for Maryland. Uh, I, you know, I always root for the hometown team, Kentucky, which means I have a, a you know good odds usually. Um, but you know, I think some good teams, right? I think this is going to be a really interesting tournament. Uh, I think you're right. Duke is going to be uh, a tough out. Uh, I think Michigan State's always tough. Um, you know, I think the top of the bracket's tougher than the middle and the bottom, but we shall see. I think this is the best thing. You know, the one thing you can say for all our discussion of exploitation and our discussion, and th- which is right and historical, man, there is something exciting about that opening weekend of, of the NCAA tournament, and um, and they have somehow captured magic in a bottle. Uh, but that still means that they should uh, find a way to to redistribute some of those funds back to the players. So. Right, right, right. And I feel like the the way I, I try to make sense of this is like, man, like I'm addicted to sugar and I'm addicted to like having cotton, right? Like one of those <laughs> things that, like you, you know, puts you in that bind. Like, man, I, I sometimes I just want to sit and, and watch this athleticism. Um, and, and look, 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 and this is not to say, like, we, oh man, we, you should also, everybody, you should also check out the women's tournament. If you're asking me who's going to win that, it's Mississippi State. Uh, I'm going with Maryland again because that's just, come on, Brenda Freeze. She's going to lead us to a title, I think, again. All right. All right. So what do we have on this? A bourbon? Absolutely. All right. Bet. There it is. There it is. Peace. Peace. <laughs>